Hey, good morning. Guys, turn with me, please, to Exodus chapter 19. If you need a Bible, you can find one in a chair underneath. Exodus chapter 19. Here's what it says. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert at Sinai. And after they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain. Now, the Old Testament was not originally written in English. It was written in the Hebrew language. And you see that phrase, and God called him. See that? In Hebrew, it would look like that. And in English, you would pronounce it something like this. Vayakra. Give me a vayakra. Now, vayakra stands in contrast to another Hebrew word that would look like this. And in English, it would be pronounced something like this. Get rid of that. Viomer. Give me a viomer. Now, God will viomer left and right throughout the entire, ex, through the entire account of Exodus. It means something like, and he said, and he says. God viomers all the time. But it is a rare thing in the book of Exodus when God viacras. In fact, in the book of Exodus, when God calls, as it gets translated, when God proclaims, God viacras, you know that special, weird, and odd things are kind of happening in your midst. Now, the word vayakra, it actually only pops up in four places in the entire book of Exodus, and here they are. You see it at Exodus 3, you see it at Exodus 19 on two occasions, at 24 and at 34. It is a rare and special thing when God vayakras. Now, every time God vayakras in Exodus, there's certain patterns that begin to form. The first is this. Whenever God viacras, God is actually personally present. Now, what I don't mean is some kind of like God is omnipresent, God is everywhere kind of way. No, I mean God in some kind of supersaturation is like, bam, God is there. And I think if I can just pause for a moment, we lose sight of this. I think we're a bit guilty at times of becoming so used to talk about God being near, God being with me, God being in my heart, that we forget at some level, God isn't here. I mean, can I ask you, when is the last time you've given God a hug? Right? But when God viacras, God shows up. In Exodus 3, it's the story of, of this burning bush, and God starts to speak out of this burning bush, and he viacras Moses to come near him. At Exodus 19, God comes down on this mountain that it says Israel was camped around, and when he comes down, there's lightning and fire and thunder and smoke and earthquakes, and it's like, oh my gosh, God has shown up. 
It escalates. In Exodus 24, you see that the select few in Israel, the elders and, and Moses and Aaron, are, are invited by God. They're vayakrad by God to come up on that mountain. And when they come up, this cloud descends on it and they see God. And they see what appears to be like this, this, this sea of what they call sapphire. And there is God standing on it, and they eat, and they drink with God on the mountain. And in Exodus 34, Moses actually comes closer, and he says, God, I want to see your face. I want to actually see what you look like. To which God basically answers, well, you can't because your face will fry off. But he puts his hand over Moses' face and it says God walks by and it says that Moses gets to see God pass by from behind. Every time in Exodus that God vayakras, God is there in his glory and presence. Now, the second thing you'll see is that every time God vayakras, he reveals something very intimate about himself. And specifically, each time that you see God Vayakra, he reveals his name. Something about the intimate nature of who he is in Exodus 3. It's where God gives Moses his name. Moses says, who are you? Who is this talking to me out of the bush? I'm the God of your fathers. No, but what is your name? And God says, I am Yahweh. I am You see in Exodus 19, God describing who he is. I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the God who brought you on Egypt's, on on eagle's wings. God reveals something about himself in the most personal ways, not just in the general ways that we sense him, but in the most detailed personal ways when he vayakras. Now, the third thing you'll see is that when God vayakras, Something happens to the landscape. You you get this sense that something has changed here in the environment, and suddenly we are standing on holy ground. You see this in Exodus 3, where God calls to Moses from the burning bush, and then he says, take off your shoes. Do not come any closer, because this is now holy ground. You see, in Exodus 19, God giving the people warning, I'm going to come down, and you're going to see me on this mountain. But when I do, don't come near the mountain. Don't even approach it. Don't even touch it. Don't even let your animals, like, you know, get away. You know, you open your door, and your dog runs out the door. Don't let them go by the mountain, you know. Put up fences around the mountain, because this mountain is holy ground. You see, when, when God invites them up to his presence on the mountain, that, that this cloud comes down and there's something like, I'm not going in there. Because something in there is holy and powerful and frightening. In fact, in Exodus 34, the effect of this is so much that after Moses sees God pass by, He's never the same. It literally says this. It says that forevermore, Moses has to wear a shroud over his face because his face is literally glowing. This is what happens when God vayakras. This is what happens when he comes in his glory and presence. Are you with me? Now, 
There's one final thing you see in Exodus. Every time God via cross, God is on a mountain. Every time God via cross, he is, you know, oh, that's horrible. <laughs> that's snow, all right? Um, God is up here in the mountains. God is up on a mountain every time he via cross. Now, my family and I, we got a chance. We went out to uh, Colorado last weekend, back to our old stomping grounds in the Denver area and Front Range. And uh, it just, just by the way, do you guys realize this? It was 64 degrees in Denver last weekend. May I just ask, why do we live in the Midwest? I mean, I'm not a farmer. I'm not about to begin farming, all right? What are we doing here? 64 degrees in Colorado. Now, we were staying at least one night up at this, this, this lodge, this resort, up north of Denver. But the following day, we were planning to go ski down on the I-70 corridor down at a, at a resort called Keystone. You hear of it? Now, if you look on a map, from where we needed to get at where we were staying down to Keystone, it was somewhere like 45 to 60 miles roughly, all right? But when you would type it into GPS or Google Maps, do you know what it said for like travel time? Two and a half hours. Two and a half hours to go 45 to 60 miles. Now here in Illinois, you want to go 45 to 60 miles, you do it in 15 minutes, right? <laughs> Two and a half hours. Why? Because you have to switch back. You have to go around. There's roads closed by snow. You can't get a straight shot because there's something unique about mountains and that fundamentally, mountains are a barrier. Mountains separate. Have you ever tried to climb a mountain? If you have, have you noticed how it's much easier to walk the same distance in a flat straight line? Because when you try to go up, there is something about a mountain that keeps you at bay. It says, stay away. You're not passing through here. And God is on a mountain. What you see is, despite that God is crying people and inviting them and calling them into his presence, there is some kind of barrier between them and him. There is this thing that stands between God and his people. Because God is Holy. And when he shows up, it becomes holy ground. And we're not. And you know, holy and unholy, they just don't mix. You know, it's like gasoline in a match. It's like bleach in ammonia. It's like hamsters and microwaves. They just <laughs> don't mix, right? And when they do, 
bad things happen. And so what you see is God on the mountain and the people separated from him down there, a separation between God and those that he vayikras. Are you with me? Okay, now, Exodus is, um, it's a bipolar book, all right? If you read the first half of Exodus, chapters 1 through roughly 20, you get an epic adventure like second to none. I mean, you have the story of this, like, this, this, this rogue underdog hero who has to go and stand against the superpower of his day. You have the presence of God and things in today's terms that might even be described as supernatural or magical. You've got God showing up and there's, there's plagues and signs and miracles and, and cosmic powers at work. You have harrowing battles and, and narrow escapes and, and climactic victories. I mean, it's almost like as Moses is writing this, you see John Williams writing the score for it at the exact same time, you know? The, it, it, if it had hobbits and Jedi, it would be complete. It is an epic that will grip you, and it is second to none. And then you come to the second half of Exodus. Roughly chapters 21 to 40, and you know what it is? Instructions on how to build a tent. Exodus 1 through 20, epic narrative. Exodus 25, well, in step three, we put the pole through the third hole and rate. It is a bipolar book. Just check this out. Look at Exodus with me. Check this out. Flip uh, just like Exodus 20, 22, 23. And just look at some of these subheaders with me, the, the, the little title headers that they give after various things. Turn actually to, to Exodus 25. You see it? What does it say? Offerings for the tabernacle. Now, tabernacle is just a fancy church word that means tent. Tabernacle and tent, same thing. Offerings for the tent. And then in verse 10, the ark, which goes in the tent. And in verse 23, the table, which goes in the tent. And 31, the lampstand that goes in the tent. And oh, look, 26, the tent again. 27, the altar of burnt offering for the tent. And and 9, here's how you make the courtyard around the tent. And 27, 20, oh my gosh, we forgot how the oil works for the tent. We we have lampstands. we got to know how to make oil for the lampstands, so let's spend some mind-numbing time on that. And just when you think you've had enough, you get to chapter 28. Oh, there's people that go in the tent. And we got to hear about their clothes. So in verse 6, we learn about the ephod. You know what an ephod is? Yeah, right? Right? And in verse 15, the breast piece. And in verse 31, the other priestly garments, because we need to know what their shoes look like. In, verse tw- in chapter 29, how they were consecrated. And in chapter 30, the altar of incense. And in 30, verse 17, the basin for washing. And in 30, verse 22, the anointing oil. And oh, heaven forbid, we don't know how the incense is made. So 30, verse 30. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. It is the most mind-numbing, bleed-out-your-eyes read that anyone can conceive 
And it begs a question, doesn't it? In Exodus 1 through 20, we have this harrowing account of God on this mountain, via crying, fighting for his people, liberating his people. The, 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 the drama, the intrigue, it plays out. And we see the separation between God here and, you know, the people, you know, down here. And there's this distance between the people and, and God, uh, 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 God on the mountain, the people down here, and then it gives 20 chapters on how to, well, here, build a tent. And it begs the question, why? Why does God do this? Why, why, why does the author, in a day and age when writing materials were at a premium, you know, when every word counted, in a day and age when they gave very little elaboration or biographical detail to anything, why devote 20 chapters to describing a tent? What's going on? And how does it fit into the larger storyline? And what does God have brewing here that he doesn't want us to miss. Now, if you turn to the end of Exodus chapter 40, and you key in right at that last little section, right around verse 32, you see that? 34, excuse me. Listen to what it says. After this tent is completely done, after every last detail is accounted for, the thing is furnished, the thing is set, the thing is ready to rock, right? It says, then the cloud covered the tent. The same cloud that we saw in Exodus 19, the same cloud that we saw in Exodus 24, the same cloud that we saw in Exodus 34, this presence of God. God comes down and covers the tent And the glory of the Lord filled the tent. Moses could not enter the tent because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled it. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above this tent, this tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, and in the sight of all the house of Israel during their travels, God's presence is in this tent. Now, are you at 4 verse 38? Did you follow with me? I'd like you to look at the next verse. Do you see it? Do you have it? Look with me at the next verse. You might have to turn the page. It's Leviticus 1.1. Because for the Hebrews, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy were meant to be read as one single unit. Kind of like watching movie trilogies or, or, or like sections in a book. The flow of each is integral to each other. And look at how Leviticus 1.1 begins. The Lord, Vayikrad, Moses. 
the Lord, Vayakrad, Moses, and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. What is Exodus about? God is up here and we're down here, but what is Leviticus about? That God has come down from a mountain to live with us in our midst. Leviticus is about the idea that there is no longer this separation from God where he is up here and we are down here, but that God has chosen to come down in the midst of us and live right here in our midst. It's fascinating, this this book that we call Leviticus. Do you realize that that is actually a Greek word? But do you know what the Hebrews call their book that we call Leviticus? They call it Vayikra. The first word to appear in this book. And for the next several weeks, this is what we're going to be looking at. This book called Leviticus. This book called Vayikra. I know, right? You, you thought that uh, Exodus 21 through 40 were bad? Oh my gosh, could it get worse? Yeah? I mean, ha- have you ever tried to read the Bible from beginning to end in order? I, I mean, Le- Leviticus is the widow maker. You know? <laughs> it just any intention you have, I mean, it gets crushed right there. I've met so many people, you start in Genesis like, this is great, and then you get to the beginning of Exodus, and it's like, man, the story is phenomenal, and then you hit Exodus 21, and you're like, "Mm, okay, but it can't last that long, and then you hit 23, 25, 27, 32, 33, you literally start bleeding out your eyes, and just when you come to 40, you start seeing light at the end of the tunnel, God smacks you with Leviticus. And it ends right there. You get three chapters and it's like, forget this, right? You've been there. You've been there, right? We all have. Yet it is amazing to me that for Jesus, Vayakra was central to him. And for the people of God, it was central to them. It would be the first book that Jewish boys would often read. It stands at the head, the the center, the the apex of the, the Torah. This book that we think is dead is something that is alive, and it is what we are gonna look at together today. And I know, half of you don't believe me. I mean, you go through it, right? Let's chart it. The first seven chapters... It's about offerings. And I don't mean how to like throw, throw like a check in the plate. I mean like how to kill an animal and slaughter it on an altar at a place that doesn't even exist anymore. How to, how to properly bake bread that you're going to give to God. I, I mean, rock on, but like if you put bread in the offering plate, that would just be like a little weird, right? You know where it goes after that? Let's talk about Priests. Let's spend two or three chapters talking about priests. Nothing interesting about them. Just what they wear. What they do. You know what goes from there? 
cleanliness laws. Why cows great and pigs stink, right? And then chapter 13 is another highlight for me. Skin rashes. Because that's inspiring to me in my daily devotions. How about you? And just when you don't think it can get any worse, you hit the next chapter. Genital discharges. You know, do you ever wonder why children's Bibles don't include that chapter in there? And you sit there and you go, what do you do with this? But I got to tell you, I have become utterly enamored with the book of Leviticus. And for me, it began about 13, 14 years ago when I came into contact with, with, a, with a church that was just starting out. And they started by preaching through Leviticus. And in three months, the church grew to 3,000 people. Because, of course, all the church growth literature says whenever you want to really reach people and speak to their heart, begin with Leviticus, right? But, you know, what I'd like to do today is I'd like to read to you an excerpt from the pastor who founded this church about why he did it. Listen to what he says. Words. We actually believe that the biblical text is a living and breathing word. For the first year or so of our existence as a church, I preached through the book of Leviticus, verse by verse. Yeah, that's right. Menstrual blood, goat sacrifice, and no shellfish, please. Every verse. Now, if at this moment you're smiling or laughing or thinking that's crazy, what have you just said about the biblical text? Do you have a canon within a canon? Either you believe that God speaks through his entire text or you stick within the evangelically approved texts that are tamed down enough for you to handle. We have no desire to tame the text. We want to let it out of its cage. We want to see it prowl around our lives, devouring us and spitting out the bones. We don't want to be detached, methodical scientists who stand over the subject and apply the proper rules, the proper methods, the proper procedures so that we can achieve favorable results. The modern impulse is always to reduce it to simple principles and clever maxims, to continually insist that with enough work, it will all make sense and line up. Life does not always line up. We love the scriptures and we want them to sweep us off our feet. In the new world, much of what is currently considered preaching and study will be rendered totally irrelevant. The Bible is not a nice book. It is not a clean book. It is not a guide to proper behavior. It does not even seem to care whether it is relevant or not. I have asked the congregation to please never tell me that my message was nice. The Bible is a revolutionary manifesto that could get you killed in many parts of the world. It is living, it is breathing, and it demands that we surrender to it unconditionally, 
so that it can transform us. There are several things about Leviticus that make it the ultimate postmodern book for preaching. The first thing is that it's visual. It is essentially a book of props and images. Instead of trying to describe an abstract concept like substitutionary atonement, God instructs the worshipers to slit the throat of a lamb and place it on an altar. This innocent, perfect lamb is getting what I deserve. Instead of a philosophical treatise on the nature of the kingdom of death, God gives detailed instructions on how contact with a corpse will affect your ability to come into his presence. God understands, he gets how we're wired and how we learn and and what stirs us, images and, and metaphors and pictures. So in communicating to us the deepest spiritual truths about what it means to relate to him, he speaks to us in a visual language that we can understand. Second, Leviticus is communal. What's the worst punishment you can receive? Having to live outside the community. Everything revolves around the life of this assembly who belong to God. The Day of Atonement is a fascinating exercise in dealing with communal sin, a totally foreign concept in the modern world, yet one that strikes a deep chord with more and more today. Thirdly, Leviticus is experiential. You butchered the bull. You handled its intestines. You said the prayers. You went through the procedures. It's visceral, bloody, and participatory. Rarely are they commanded to watch anything passively because most of the teachings center around what a person is supposed to do. Here's a fourth theme. Meta-narrative. Much of Leviticus appears so random at first reading, one has to ask probing questions about context. What is this doing in the Bible? What we discovered is that every single chapter brought us to Jesus. It is almost as though there is a magnetic pull toward the cross in every chapter. Perhaps the book should be retitled, The Gospel According to Leviticus. The confidence and faith that this has inspired in our congregation, it was amazing. If that totally bizarre passage is a picture of Christ in some way, seemingly against all odds, then what does that say about the rest of Scripture? Is there more going on with the minor prophets than perhaps we are aware of? Or how about Lamentations? And what's the deal with the book of Judges? We have learned that the Scriptures speak, and they speak now. And they speak to all of us. It's not our responsibility to prove its relevance or usefulness. It's our privilege to enter into them and to be transformed by them. To absorb them. And let them absorb us. To read them. And to let them read us. To devour them. And to let it devour us. By the way, 
I'm getting ready to preach through numbers next. Have you read 5, 11 through 31? Oh, man. Guys, this is Leviticus. This is Vayikra. It is a story that is alive and pulsing with what it means for a holy God to come down into our holy presence because he desires to be down here with us. Now, you look through the New Testament and before you know it, you start realizing that it is just pulsing with images and metaphors and theology of Leviticus. It, I mean, it drips off the pages. And these next several weeks, we're going to come into this amazing book that God has, this gospel according to Leviticus, and see what these pictures and these images mean and what it means for us to live in God's presence today. Now, I want to invite you to, uh, to rise. And to close this up today, I want to invite you into an exercise together with me. See, central to, to all of this is that holiness and unholiness just don't mix, Right? And God is holy, and we are not, and yet the holy God desires to come down among unholy people like you and me. Leviticus isn't the only book of images and metaphors and meta narrative. The Old Testament is filled with it. In another place, in one of the prophets who, who drew on. Leviticus and its meaning and its wealth talked about this, this, this figure, this person, this servant who would come to make the unholy holy again. 